Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences, so there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Chapter 21. Hercule Poirot on the case. In a measured voice, Poirot began his exposition. It seems strange to you, mon ami, that a man should plan his own death. So strange that you prefer to reject the truth as fantastic and to revert to a story that is in reality ten times more impossible. Yes, Monsieur Renaud planned his own death, but there is one detail that perhaps escapes you. He did not intend to die. I shook my head, bewildered. But no, it is almost simple, really, said Poirot kindly. For the crime that Monsieur Renaud proposed, a murderer was not necessary, as I told you, but a body was. Let us reconstruct, seeing events this time from a different angle. Georges Canot flies from justice to Canada. There, under an assumed name, he marries and finally acquires a vast fortune in South America. But there is a nostalgia upon him for his own country. Twenty years have elapsed. He is considerably changed in appearance, besides being a man of such eminence that no one is likely to connect him with a fugitive from justice many years ago. He deems it quite safe to return. He takes up his headquarters in England, but intends to spend the summers in France, and ill fortune, that obscure justice which shapes men's ends and will not allow them to evade the consequences of their acts, takes him to Merlin V. There, in the whole of France, is the one person who is capable of recognizing him. It is, of course, a gold mine to Madame Dubril, and a gold mine of which she is not slow to take advantage. He is helpless, absolutely in her power, and she bleeds him heavily. And then the inevitable happens. Jack Renaud falls in love with the beautiful girl he sees almost daily and wishes to marry her. That rouses his father. At all costs, he will prevent his son marrying the daughter of this evil woman. Jack Renaud knows nothing of his father's past. But Madame Renaud knows everything. She is a woman of great force of character and passionately devoted to her husband. They take counsel together. Renaud sees only one way of escape, death. He must appear to die, in reality escaping to another country where he will start again under an assumed name and where Madame Renaud, having played the widow's part for a while, can join him. It is essential that she should have control of the money, so he alters his will. How they meant to manage the body business originally, I do not know. Possibly an art student's skeleton and a fire or something of the kind. But long before their plans have matured, an event occurs which plays into their hands. A rough tramp, violent and abusive, finds his way into the garden. There is a struggle. Monsieur Renaud seeks to eject him, and suddenly the tramp, 
an epileptic, falls down in a fit. He is dead. Monsieur Renaud calls his wife. Together they drag him into the shed, as we know. The event had occurred just outside, and they realize the marvelous opportunity that has been vouchsafed them. The man bears no resemblance to Monsieur Renaud, but he is middle-aged, of a usual French type. That is sufficient. I rather fancy that they sat on the bench up there, out of earshot from the house, discussing matters. Their plan was quickly made. The identification must rest solely on Madame Renaud's evidence. Jack Renaud and the chauffeur, who had been with his master two years, must be got out of the way. It was unlikely that the French women servants would go near the body, and in any case, Renaud intended to take measures to deceive anyone not likely to appreciate details. Masters was sent off, a telegram dispatched to Jack, Buenos Aires being selected to give credence to the story that Renaud had decided upon. Having heard of me as a rather obscure elderly detective, he wrote his appeal for help, knowing that when I arrived, the production of the letter would have a profound effect upon the examining magistrate, which, of course, it did. They dressed the body of the tramp in a suit of Monsieur Renaud's and left his ragged coat and trousers by the door of the shed, not daring to take them into the house. And then, to give credence to the tale Madame Renaud was to tell, they drove the aeroplane dagger through his heart. That night, Monsieur Renaud will first bind and gag his wife, and then, taking a spade, will dig a grave in that particular spot of ground where he knows a, how do you call it, bunker is to be made. It is essential that the body should be found. Madame Dubriel must have no suspicions. On the other hand, if a little time elapses, any dangers as to identity will be greatly lessened. Then Monsieur Renaud will don the tramp's rags and shuffle off to the station where he will leave, unnoticed, by the 1210 train. Since the crime will be supposed to have taken place two hours later, no suspicion can possibly attach to him. You see now his annoyance at the inopportune visit of the girl Bella. Every moment of delay is fatal to his plans. He gets rid of her as soon as he can, however, then to work. He leaves the front door slightly ajar to create the impression that the assassins left that way. He binds and gags Madame Renaud, correcting his mistake of twenty-two years ago, when the looseness of the bonds caused suspicion to fall upon his accomplice, but leaving her primed with essentially the same story as he had invented before, proving the unconscious recoil of the mind against originality. The night is chilly, and he slips on an overcoat over his underclothing, intending to cast it into the grave with the dead man. He goes out by the window, smoothing over the flower bed carefully, and thereby furnishing the most positive evidence against himself. He goes out onto the lonely golf links, and he digs. And then... Yes? And then, said Poirot gravely, the justice that he has so long eluded overtakes him. An unknown hand stabs him in the back. Now, Hastings, you understand what I mean when I talk of two crimes. 
the first crime, the crime that Monsieur Renaud, in his arrogance, asked us to investigate. Ah, but he made a famous mistake there. He misjudged. Hercule Poirot is solved. But behind it lies a deeper riddle. And to solve that will be difficult, since the criminal, in his wisdom, has been content to avail himself of the devices prepared by Monsieur Renaud. It has been a perplexing and baffling mystery to solve. A young hand, like Giraud, who does not place any reliance on the psychology, is almost certain to fail. "'You're marvelous, Poirot,' I said with admiration. "'Absolutely marvelous. "'No one on earth but you could have done it.' "'I think my praise pleased him, "'for once in his life he looked almost embarrassed. "'Ah, then you no longer despise poor old Papa Poirot. "'You shift your allegiance back from the human foxhound. "'His term for Giraud never failed to make me smile. "'Rather. "'You've scored over him handsomely.' That poor Giraud, said Poirot, trying unsuccessfully to look modest, without doubt it is not all stupidity. He has had bad luck once or twice. That dark hair coiled round the dagger, for instance. To say the least, it was misleading. To tell you the truth, Poirot, I said slowly, even now I don't quite see. Whose hair was it? Madame Renaud's, of course. That is where bad luck came in. Her hair, dark originally, is almost completely silvered. It might just as easily have been a gray hair, and then, by no conceivable effort, could Giraud have persuaded himself it came from the head of Jack Renaud. But it is all of a piece. Always the facts must be twisted to fit the theory. Did not Giraud find the traces of two persons, a man and a woman, in the shed? And how does that fit in with his reconstruction of the case? I will tell you, it does not fit in, and so we shall hear no more of them. I ask you, is that a methodical way of working? The great Giraud, the great Giraud is nothing but a toy balloon, swollen with its own importance. But I, Hercule Poirot, whom he despises, will be the little pin that pricks the big balloon, comme ça, and he made an expressive gesture. Then, calming down, he resumed. Without doubt, when Madame Renaud recovers, she will speak. The possibility of her son being accused of the murder never occurred to her. How should it, when she believed him safely at sea on board the Anzora? Ah, voilà une femme, Hastings. What force, what self-command. She only made one slip. On his unexpected return, it does not matter now, and no one noticed, no one realized the significance of those words. What a terrible part she's had to play, poor woman. Imagine the shock when she goes to identify the body, and instead of what she expects, sees the actual lifeless form of the husband she has believed miles away by now. No wonder she fainted. But since then, despite her grief and her despair, how resolutely she has played her part and how the anguish of it must wring her. She cannot say a word to set us on the track of the real murderers. For her son's sake, no one must know that Paul Renaud was Georges Cunou, the criminal. Final and most bitter blow, she has admitted publicly that Madame Dubriel was her husband's mistress, 
for a hint of blackmail might be fatal to her secret. How cleverly she dealt with the examining magistrate when he asked her if there was any mystery in her husband's past life. Nothing so romantic, I am sure. It was perfect, the indulgent tone, the soupçon of sad mockery. At once, Monsieur Hotet felt himself foolish and melodramatic. Yes, she is a great woman. If she loved a criminal, she loved him royally. Poirot lost himself in contemplation. One thing more, Poirot, what about the piece of lead piping? You do not see? To disfigure the victim's face so that it would be unrecognizable, it was that which first set me on the right track, and that imbecile of a Giraud swarming all over it to look for match-ends. Did I not tell you that a clue of two feet long was quite as good as a clue of two inches? Well, Giraud will sing small now, I observed hastily, to lead the conversation away from my own shortcomings. As I said before, will he? If he has arrived at the right person by the wrong method, he will not permit that to worry him. But surely, I paused as I saw the new trend of things. You see, Hastings, we must now start again. Who killed Monsieur Renaud? Someone who was near the villa just before twelve o'clock that night. Someone who would benefit by his death. The description fits Jack Renaud only too well. The crime need not have been premeditated. And then, the dagger. I started. I had not realized that point. Of course, I said. The second dagger we found in the tramp was Mrs. Renaud's. There were two then. Certainly. And since they were duplicates, it stands to reason that Jack Renaud was the owner. But that would not trouble me so much. In fact, I have a little idea as to that. No, the worst indictment against him is again psychological. Hereditary, mon ami, hereditary. Like father, like son, Jack Renaud, when all is said or done, is the son of Georges Cunot. His tone was grave and earnest and I was impressed in spite of myself. "'What is your little idea that you mentioned just now?' I asked. For answer, Poirot consulted his turn-up-faced watch, and then asked, "'What time is the afternoon boat from Calais?' "'About five, I believe. "'That will do very well. "'We shall just have time. "'You are going to England?' "'Yes, my friend. "'Why?' "'To find a possible witness.' Who? With a rather peculiar smile upon his face, Poirot replied, Miss Bella Duvine. But how will you find her? What do you know about her? I know nothing about her, but I can guess a good deal. We may take it for granted that her name is Bella Duvine, and since that name was faintly familiar to Monsieur Stoner, though evidently not in connection with the Renaud family, it is probable that she is on the stage. Jack Renaud was a young man with plenty of money and twenty years of age. The stage is sure to have been the home of his first love. It tallies, too, with Monsieur Renaud's attempt to placate her with a check. I think I shall find her all right, especially with the help of this. And he brought out the photograph I had seen him take from Jack Renaud's drawer. With love from Bella was scrawled across the corner. But... It was not that which held my eyes fascinated. 
The likeness was not first-rate, but for all that, it was unmistakable to me. I felt a cold sinking, as though some unutterable calamity had befallen me. It was the face of Cinderella. Chapter 22 I Find Love For a moment or two, I sat as though frozen, the photograph still in my hand. Then, summoning all my courage to appear unmoved, I handed it back. At the same time, I stole a quick glance at Poirot. Had he noticed anything? But to my relief, he did not seem to be observing me. Anything unusual in my manner had certainly escaped him. He rose briskly to his feet. We have no time to lose. We must make our departure with all dispatch. All is well. The sea, it will be calm. In the bustle of departure, I had no time for thinking. But once on board the boat, secure from Poirot's observation, I pulled myself together and attacked the facts dispassionately. How much did Poirot know? Was he aware that my acquaintance of the train and Bella Duvine were one and the same? Why had he gone to the Hotel de Far, on my behalf, as I had believed? Or had I only fatuously thought so? And was this visit undertaken with a deeper and more sinister purpose? But, in any case, why was he bent on finding this girl? Did he suspect her of having seen Jack Renaud commit the crime? Or did he suspect... But that was impossible. The girl had no grudge against the elder Renaud, no possible motive for wishing his death. What had brought her back to the scene of the murder? I went over the facts carefully. She must have left the train at Calais, where I parted from her that day. No wonder I had been unable to find her on the boat. If she had dined in Calais and then taken a train out to Merlinville, she would have arrived at the Villa Genevieve just about the time that Francoise said. What had she done when she left the house, just after ten? Presumably either gone to a hotel or returned to Calais. And then? The crime had been committed on Tuesday night. On Thursday morning, she was once more in merlin V. Had she ever left France at all? I doubted it very much. What kept her there? The hope of seeing Jack Renaud? I had told her, as at the time we believed, that he was on the high seas, en route to Buenos Aires. Possibly she was aware that the Anzora had not sailed. But to know that, she must have seen Jack. Was that what Poirot was after? Had Jack Renaud, returning to see Marta Dubril, come face to face instead with Bella Duvine, the girl he had heartlessly thrown over? I began to see daylight. If that were indeed the case, it might furnish Jack with the alibi he needed. Yet, under those circumstances, his silence seemed difficult to explain. Why could he not have spoken out boldly? Did he fear for this former entanglement of his to come to the ears of Marta Dubril? I shook my head, dissatisfied. The thing had been harmless enough, a foolish boy and girl affair, and I reflected cynically that the son of a millionaire was not likely to be thrown over by a penniless French girl, who, moreover, loved him devotedly, without a much graver cause. Altogether, I found the affair puzzling and unsatisfactory. I disliked intensely being associated with Poirot in hunting this girl down, 
but I could not see any way of avoiding it without revealing everything to him, and this, for some reason, I was loath to do. Poirot reappeared brisk and smiling at Dover, and our journey to London was uneventful. It was past nine o'clock when we arrived, and I supposed that we should return straight away to our rooms and do nothing till the morning. But Poirot had other plans. We must lose no time, mon ami. The news of the arrest will not be in the English papers until the day after tomorrow, but still, we must lose no time. I did not quite follow his reasoning, but I merely asked how he proposed to find the girl. Do you remember Joseph Ahrens, the theatrical agent? No, I assisted him in a little matter of a Japanese wrestler, a pretty little problem, I must recount it to you one day. He, without doubt, will be able to put us in the way of finding out what we want to know. It took us some time to run Mr. Aarons to earth, and it was after midnight when we finally managed it. He greeted Poirot with every evidence of warmth, and professed himself ready to be of service to us in any way. "'There's not much about the profession I don't know,' he said, beaming genially. "'Ah, bien. Monsieur Aarons, I desire to find a young girl called Bella Duvine. "'Bella Duvine? I know the name, but for the moment I can't place it. What's her line?' "'That I do not know, but here is her photograph.' Mr. Aarons studied it for a moment, then his face lighted. "'Got it,' he slapped his thigh. "'The Dulcibella kids, by the Lord. "'The Dulcibella kids. "'That's it. They're sisters. "'Acrobats, dancers, and singers. "'Give quite a good little turn. "'They're in the provinces somewhere, I believe, "'if they're not resting. "'They've been on in Paris for the last two or three weeks. "'Can you find out for me exactly where they are? "'Easy as a bird. "'You go home, and I'll send you round the dope in the morning.' With this promise we took leave of him. He was as good as his word. About eleven o'clock the following day, a scribbled note reached us. The Dulcibella sisters are on at the palace in Coventry. Good luck to you. Without more ado, we started for Coventry. Poirot made no inquiries at the theatre, but contented himself with booking stalls for the variety performance that evening. The show was wearisome beyond words, or perhaps it was only my mood that made it seem so. Japanese families balance themselves precariously, would-be fashionable men in greenish evening dress and exquisitely slicked hair, reeled off society patter and danced marvelously. Stout prima donnas sang at the top of the human register. A comic comedian endeavored to be Mr. George Roby and failed signally. At last, the number went up which announced the Dulcibella kids. My heart beat. There she was. There they both were, the pair of them, one flaxen-haired, one dark, matching as to size with short fluffy skirts and immense buster-brown bows. They looked a pair of extremely piquant children. They began to sing. Their voices were fresh and true, rather thin and music haley but attractive. It was quite a pretty little turn. They danced neatly and did some clever little acrobatic feats. The words of their songs were crisp and catchy. When the curtain fell, there was a full meed of applause. Evidently, the Dulcibella kids were a success.
Suddenly, I felt that I could remain no longer. I must get out into the air. I suggested leaving to Poirot. Go, by all means, mon ami. I amuse myself, and will stay to the end. I will rejoin you later. It was only a few steps from the theater to the hotel. I went up to the sitting room, ordered a whiskey and soda, and sat drinking it, staring into the empty grate. I heard the door open and turned my head, thinking it was Poirot. Then I jumped to my feet. It was Cinderella who stood in the doorway. She spoke haltingly, her breath coming in little gasps. I saw you in front, you and your friend, when you got up to go. I was waiting outside and followed you. Why are you here, in Coventry? What were you doing there tonight? Is the man who is with you the, the detective? She stood there, the cloak she had wrapped around her stage dress slipping from her shoulders. I saw the whiteness of her cheeks under the rouge and heard the terror in her voice. And in that moment, I understood everything, understood why Poirot was seeking her and what she feared, and understood at last my own heart. Yes, I said gently. Is he looking for me? She half whispered. Then, as I did not answer for a moment, she slipped down by the big chair and burst into violent, bitter weeping. I knelt down by her, holding her in my arms and smoothing the hair back from her face. Don't cry, child. Don't cry, for God's sake. You're safe here. I'll take care of you. Don't cry, darling. Don't cry. I know. I know everything. Oh, but you don't. I think I do. And after a moment, as her sobs grew quieter, I asked, It was you who took the dagger, wasn't it? Yes. That was why you wanted me to show you round, and why you pretended to faint. Again, she nodded. It was a strange thought to come to me at the moment, but it shot into my mind that I was glad her motive was what it had been, rather than the idle and morbid curiosity I had accused her of at the time. How gallantly she had played her part that day, inwardly racked with fear and trepidation, as she must have been. Poor little soul, bearing the burden of a moment's impetuous action. "'Why did you take the dagger?' I asked presently. She replied, as simply as a child. I was afraid there might be finger marks on it. But didn't you remember that you had worn gloves? She shook her head as though bewildered, and then said slowly, Are you going to give me up to, to the police? Good God, no. Her eyes sought mine long and earnestly, and then she asked in a little quiet voice that sounded afraid of itself, why not? It seemed a strange place and a strange time for a declaration of love, and God knows, in all my imagining, I had never pictured love coming to me in such a guise. But I answered simply, and naturally enough, Because I love you, Cinderella. She bent her head down, as though ashamed, and muttered in a broken voice, You can't, you can't, not if you knew. And then, as though rallying herself, she faced me squarely and asked, "'What do you know, then?' "'I know that you came to see Mr. Renaud that night. "'He offered you a check, and you tore it up indignantly. "'Then you left the house.' "'I paused. "'Go on.' 
what next? I don't know whether you knew that Jack Renaud would be coming that night, or whether you just waited about on the chance of seeing him, but you did wait about. Perhaps you were just miserable and walked aimlessly, but at any rate, just before twelve, you were still near there, and you saw a man on the golf links. Again I paused. I had leapt to the truth in a flash as she entered the room, but now the picture rose before me even more convincingly. I saw vividly the peculiar pattern of the overcoat on the dead body of Mr. Renaud, and I remembered the amazing likeness that had startled me into believing for one instant that the dead man had risen from the dead when his son burst into our conclave in the salon. Go on, repeated the girl steadily. I fancy his back was to you, but you recognized him, or thought you recognized him. The gate and the carriage were familiar to you, and the pattern of his overcoat. I paused. You told me in the train on the way from Paris that you had Italian blood in your veins, and that you had nearly got into trouble once with it. You used a threat in one of your letters to Jack Renaud. When you saw him there, your anger and jealousy drove you mad, and you struck. I don't believe for a minute that you meant to kill him, but you did kill him, Cinderella. She'd flung up her hands to cover her face, and in a choked voice she said, You're right. You're right. I can see it all as you tell it. Then she turned on me almost savagely. And you love me. Knowing what you do, how can you love me? I don't know, I said a little wearily. I think love is like that, a thing one cannot help. I have tried, I know, ever since the first day I met you, and love has been too strong for me. And then suddenly, when I least expected it, she broke down again, casting herself down on the floor and sobbing wildly. Oh, I can't, she cried. I don't know what to do. I don't know which way to turn. Oh, pity me, pity me, someone, and tell me what to do. Again, I knelt by her, soothing her as best I could. Don't be afraid of me, Bella. For God's sake, don't be afraid of me. I love you, that's true, but I don't want anything in return. Only let me help you. Love him still, if you have to, but let me help you as he can't. It was as though she had been turned to stone by my words. She raised her head from her hands and stared at me. You think that, she whispered. You think that I love Jack Renaud? Then, half laughing, half crying, she flung her arms passionately round my neck and pressed her sweet wet face to mine. Not as I love you, she whispered. Never as I love you. Her lips brushed my cheek, and then, seeking my mouth, kissed me again and again with a sweetness and fire beyond belief. The wildness of it and the wonder I shall not forget. No, not as long as I live. It was a sound in the doorway that made us look up. Poirot was standing there looking at us. I did not hesitate. With a bound, I reached him and pinioned his arms to his sides. Quick, I said to the girl, get out of here as fast as you can. I'll hold him. With one look at me, she fled out of the room past us. I held Poirot in a grip of iron. Mon ami, observed the latter mildly, you do this sort of thing very well. The strong man holds me in his grasp, and I am helpless as a child. 
"'but all this is uncomfortable and slightly ridiculous. "'Let us sit down and be calm. "'You won't pursue her? "'Mon Dieu, no. "'Am I Giraud? "'Release me, my friend.' "'Keeping a suspicious eye upon him, "'for I paid Poirot the compliment "'of knowing that I was no match for him "'in astuteness, I relaxed my grip, "'and he sank into an armchair, "'feeling his arms tenderly.' "'It is that you have the strength of a bull "'when you arouse, Tastings. "'Ah, bien. "'And do you think you have behaved well to your old friend? "'I show you the girl's photograph, and you recognize it, "'but you never say a word. "'There was no need if you knew that I recognized it,' "'I said rather bitterly. "'So Poirot had known all along. "'I had not deceived him for an instant. "'Ta-ta, you did not know that I knew that,' "'and tonight you helped the girl to escape "'when we have found her with so much trouble. "'Ah, bien, it comes to this. "'Are you going to work with me or against me, Hastings?' "'For a moment or two I did not answer. "'To break with my old friend gave me great pain. "'Yet I must definitely range myself against him. "'Would he ever forgive me?' I wondered. "'He had been strangely calm so far, "'but I knew him to possess marvellous self-command.' Poirot, I said, I'm sorry. I admit I've behaved badly to you over this, but sometimes one has no choice, and in future I must take my own line. Poirot nodded his head several times. I understand, he said. The mocking light had quite died out of his eyes, and he spoke with a sincerity and kindness that surprised me. It is that, my friend, is it not? It is love that has come, not as you imagined it, all cock-a-hoop with fine feathers, but sadly with bleeding feet. Well, well, I warned you. When I realized that this girl must have taken the dagger, I warned you. Perhaps you remember, but already it was too late. But tell me, how much do you know? I met his eyes squarely. Nothing that you could tell me would be any surprise to me, Poirot. Understand that. "'But in case you think of resuming your search for Miss Duvine, "'I should like you to know one thing clearly. "'If you have any idea that she was concerned in the crime, "'or was the mysterious lady who called upon Mr. Renaud that night, "'you are wrong. "'I travelled home from France with her that day "'and parted from her at Victoria that evening, "'so that it is clearly impossible for her to have been in Merlin V. "'Ah,' Poirot looked at me thoughtfully, "'and you would swear to that in a court of law. "'Most certainly I would.' "'Poirot rose and bowed. "'Mon ami, vive l'amour. "'It can perform miracles. "'It is decidedly ingenious what you have thought of there. "'It defeats even Hercule Poirot. "'This reading comes with kind permission "'of Agatha Christie Limited.' Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.